This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Lisette Baron Carvajal, a host of the channel. Today, I will be talking to Dr. Sharika Kraffer about her wonderful book, The Last Turtleman of the Caribbean, Waterscapes of Labor, Conservation, and Boundary Making, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Welcome, Sharika. I'm so excited to have you today. Thank you for having me on the show, Lisette. So I'm so excited to have you today. You're a fellow host here at the NBN, and I really enjoy listening to your interviews. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you obtained your PhD from Pittsburgh University and that you're currently a professor of history at the United States Naval Academy. So tell us more about your personal trajectory, how you came to Latin American and Caribbean history. So if I'm correct, you were also a Fulbright Scholar at my alma mater here in Colombia, Universidad de los Andes. So please tell us more about what led you to this path. Well, it's a, I'll try to provide a, a kind of succinct summary of this. I should say that before I became a historian, I was a Latin Americanist first and foremost. I had the opportunity as a child in elementary school to be in an experimental immersion program, bilingual program in Spanish and English. And that really ignited my love for the language, but for Latin America more broadly. Um, I was able to kind of study Spanish uh, all through middle school into high school, studied abroad in, in, in Mexico. And by the time I arrived to college, I attended a small liberal arts school named Kalamazoo College, and um, I studied anthropology. But my love for anthropology was really because they offered most of the courses that I wanted to take um, with regards to Latin America. But during my college years, um, some things happened that really kind of set me on the stage or the path towards being a historian, um, particularly interested in the experiences of people of African descent. Um, the summer before my senior year, I should say, I had the opportunity to intern for a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. Um, it was called the Organization of Africans in the Americas. Um, I spent the summer working with them. And the, you know, the big project for that summer was um, helping to both organize and then execute their conference that they called the Black Family Reunion, um, which was held that year in 1999 in Barlovento, Venezuela. I was fortunate to have the organization pay for me and two other interns to attend the conference as well. And my fabulous job essentially was greeting uh, conference attendees, mostly Afro-Latin American activists who represented you know, organizations across the region um, at the Caracas airport. And it was at that conference that I had two kind of chance meetings that really shaped my professional trajectory. Um, first, I met then a then graduate student named Ben Vinson, and you or your listeners may be familiar with him. He is one of our foremost, I would say, historians of Afro-descended populations in colonial Mexico. And um, he was the first historian of color who I had met, and he had kind of fascinated me in his work, just the idea that, you know, like being a historian is a thing, that that's like a, a, a potential I know, profession. And then a second meeting I had at this conference, I happened to meet a large group of Colombian um, conference participants, um, several of whom came from an island named San Andres, which you are familiar with, but our listeners um, will become more familiar with hopefully today. And at this conference, I was just 
struck by how, you know, they were so insistent that, you know, we speak to them in English and they later shared some of their cultural struggles as an ethnic minority in Colombia. So I returned back to college and, um, you know, started to try to make plans for my post-college years. And I had learned about the Fulbright program from a classmate who had actually secured uh, a grant opportunity to Columbia. And I decided to apply for a grant as well, though initially I was considering Brazil. But eventually I was encouraged to think about my interests in San Andres and I applied for Fulbright. I then applied to grad schools, got into some, um, didn't, you know, um, quite know what directions. So I looked into anthropology and Latin American studies. I finally ended up at UCLA doing a master's in, in Latin American studies, which I finished a year later. And I was really fortunate to obtain a student grant by the Fulbright program to go to Columbia for 12 months, um, which really just changed my life in many ways. Um, first extensive time abroad. And I eventually applied to grad school from there. And so, you know, that's kind of my brief synopsis of, of my uh, story with relation to my love for and, and interest in Latin America and, and then particularly Latin American history. I love that story. So many things had to happen and were coincidental, but I'm so happy that it brought you to the field and to write this book because I think it's wonderful. So this book is about Turtle Man. And as I was reading the book, I kept wondering and imagining what brought you to study Turtle Man specifically. So you don't tell your readers how you came to the topic, but I'm so intrigued. In a way, and we will discuss this later on, this is a very unknown topic for historians. But in another way, turtles and turtle men have populated the imagination of environmentalists, conservation folks, lovers of the seas and the ocean, and even regular folks who have happened to read Hemingway, Old Men and the Sea, or read National Geographic, or other pieces of popular culture. And, and this reference come through your book, and uh, they're wonderful for you know, if potential readers want to dig into those popular culture um, sources. So tell us more about this, how you came to the topic and why Turtle Men? Yeah, well, I should say I didn't foresee writing a book about turtles, turtle fishing or turtle hunters in the Caribbean um, when I entered my PhD program at Pitt. I came to work then with uh, George Reed Andrews after um, spending my year in Colombia. And I, I really you know, was interested in questions about race and racial identity and topics related to Afro-Latin Americans. And I thought I might work on Brazil. But early on, Reed asked about my experiences in Colombia and wondered whether I would want to pursue um, my preliminary project related to what I had worked on during my Fulbright year. And I should say that I, I hadn't considered it, not because I didn't have an amazing year in Colombia. It's just that the scholarship at the time was so much richer about the experiences of African descent people in Brazil and in secondary Cuba that I just assumed that would be my trajectory. But of course, I, I thought that he, he made perfect sense. So I, I agreed. And, and I then wrote a dissertation looking at the politics of inclusion of these um, English-speaking Protestant Afro-Caribbean populations that live on these islands of San Andres and Providencia, um, which are a, a Colombian territory um, about 400 miles away from um, the mainland continent of Colombia for our listeners. Um, but as you could imagine, you know, after you finish your dissertation and, you know, you find employment and I was on tenure track, I had the task of trying to turn my dissertation into a book. And I had made the calculation to publish articles rather than write a monograph for promotion to associate professor. And as I went back to my source material, I kept thinking about a comment one of my committee members, um, the amazing Laura Putnam, had made to me um, after the defense. And she kept trying to push me to think about how my work on these kind of unknown to many people, tiny, you know, small islands could be a case study for the non-plantation Caribbean. Um, so I started to return to my sources with renewed eyes, and I began to notice that there had been these sources here and there talking about disputes between the islanders on San Andres and Providencia with other governments and even foreign hunters regarding turtle fishing. And I just kind of followed the thread, and it eventually turned into this larger book project, um, The Last Turtleman of the Caribbean. 
So just a clarification, how long did it take you since you defend your dissertation till you published this book? Yeah, so I defended my um, my dissertation in 2009, and I didn't really start this project until about 2012. And it was, you know, it's really important, I would have to say that if you can spend some time in the archives as long as possible, and, and I know that there's so much technology, and, and I know that financial resources um, are increasingly limited, particularly in the humanities. But I was really fortunate to not only have that 12-month period before doing my PhD, where I spent six months on San Andres, but six months in Bogota, basically at the archive, kind of bumming around, not really sure what to do, but gathering all these sources. And then I spent another 10 months for doctoral research. So I had a very good sense of the source material and things that I had collected and things that I had seen in the archive, but I didn't collect because it wasn't really interesting to me. So when I got started in 2012, I had a a nice little portion of what would be a part of the book, particularly um, chapter four, which hopefully we'll we'll, we'll discuss a little bit um, more later. And then from there, I was just spending the next couple years, spending um, months here and there gathering um, additional sources um, with return trips um, to Colombia, but also traveling um, elsewhere to to other um, countries in order to really round out this book project. Um, yeah, and just for our listeners to know, I think this book is so important. It's a transnational history, but for example, for Colombians that are not located in San Andres and in these islands, there's so little we know because you, we see it as a, as a region very far away. And sometimes when we're growing up, we're not taught much about the history of these small islands. And this is why I love your books for Colombians. But it has a much broader scope that we're going to talk now. So, so your book tells, and here I'm quoting you, the story of the Circum-Caribbean as a waterscape where imperial and national governments vie to control maritime frontiers, while harvesters like turtlemen plied the sea for profitable maritime commodities. So you focus on turtlemen of the Cayman Islands, men who depleted local supplies of turtles by the end of the 19th century, and then turned to hunting them across national waters. And in doing so, they drew the ire of late 19th and early 20th century national builders in Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Colombia. And they drew their ire because they exposed the limits of sovereignty, and many times they simply refused to comply with the national laws of these countries. So, Caymanians were not the only turtlemen of the Caribbean. So please tell us why you focus on them. Why are they so important in the history you want to tell us? Did you ever consider focusing on turtlemen of other nations or did you know from the start that now we know it was 2012 that you wanted to focus on Caymanians and maybe here you can briefly introduce to our listeners the history of the Cayman Islands a group of islands that today are a self-governing British overseas territory Yes. So from the beginning, I I didn't intend to center my story on the Caymanians. Um, I had came at this project from the viewpoints of the Colombian islanders of San Andres and Providencia because of all the research I had did during my um, doctoral um, research um, period. However, as I was um, digging more into the disputes, the sources clearly demonstrated that it was the Caymanians who were the most prodigious and steadfast turtle hunters of the Western Caribbean in the 19th and 20th century. And to make it really clear, um, in the book, I, I talk about turtle hunting communities. And so, you know, this would include for our listeners, you know, small islands like Roatan and Bay Islands. Uh, this would also include the coastal strips of Nicaragua, um, Costa Rica, even Panama, um, Corn Island um, off the coast of Nicaragua and, and San Andres. And so there's a lot of little places, but the Cayman Islands, which would include Grand Cayman, um, Cayman Brock, and Little Cayman, um, they're the only island society that devoted by the 19th, middle of the 19th century into the 20th century, um, pretty much their entire economy on turtle fishing. Um, this is not kind of a an ancillary activity. For example, in San Andres and Providencia, it's really coconut 
production, which is the primary um, kind of industry um, at the same time period. But for the Caymanians, this is what they did. <laughs> they they hunted turtles um, for, for various markets. So it, it became clear as I was um, pursuing more um, source material that they were going to be the center of the story. Um, I should also point out that they're not the first um, kind of uh, set of uh you know, steadfast turtle hunters. In fact, I think that if you look at the prior to the 19th century, you could make the argument that it's the mosquito of Nicaragua who really earned that title prior to, I would say, 18, you know, 50s. And and there had been some work um, done regarding them by historical geographers like Bernard Nietzscheman, for example. But to to get to your other question, to kind of orient our listeners a bit about the Cayman Islands, it's it's kind of a <laughs> uh, interesting story. So I'll kind of try to share it quickly. Um, Columbus had visited the Cayman Islands during his fourth voyage, and he and his crew had originally came upon what we call the Cayman Islands, but what they actually named Las Tortugas. And for our, our, our listeners who don't speak Spanish, um, basically they called it the turtle, the turtle islands. <laughs> um, I remember reading something from his son, Ferdinand, who was on that voyage. He, he described the islands literally swarming with sea turtles. But eventually the islands would be called the Caymans um, for some other reasons. Early European colonization did not really happen there quickly. It sort of was a spot for a variety of people seeking refuge or or trying to stop there in order to kind of replenish their food sources when they were making these voyages or trips from the Caribbean um, to the Northern Atlantic, whether they be Spanish, English, Dutch, or French. Um, but then in the 17th century, the English started to take an interest and they brought over Bermudians to settle there, um, along with this kind of polygot of residents who kind of, kind of made their home on the islands. And from there, there was some pursuit of mahogany, um, the mahogany industry, timber industry. Um, and when that went bust, they they turned their attention to sea island cotton. Both of those industries used enslaved African labor. Um, but then eventually the islands turned to turtle fishing in the in the aftermath of emancipation, essentially. And during this time, the islands were essentially a dependency to the larger neighboring Jamaica until Jamaicans gained their independence in 1962, while the Caymanians um, chose to remain under the United Kingdom as essentially a, a self-governing overseas territory. So a very important intervention of your book is centering on waterscapes rather than on land. And as you kind of already told us a little bit when you were talking about when you defended your dissertation, you use this case as a way to push against the conceptualization of the Caribbean as exclusively linked to the sugar plantation. And then you tell us that by focusing your gaze on the small maritime islands, of the Caribbean, you challenge the monolithic portrait of the region as rural and plantation-based. So can you speak more about why is it important to pay attention to the sea rather than the land? And why this quote-unquote maritime Caribbean, as you call it, um, as well as the history of these small islands is so important? Sure. When I began this project and I started to read the the historiography, I was shocked by how little attention scholars had given to the Caribbean Sea and, and, and maritime activities. You know, I have this kind of burgeoning project on turtle fishing. And of course, I want to see what others have said about um, what Caribbean peoples in the past did with regards to, you know, maritime activities and, and outside of the studies that dealt with piracy or, or buccaneering, for example. And then, of course, um, the acknowledgement to the maritime components of the Haitian Revolution. There were not many historians getting into kind of other maritime vernacular activities, just kind of here and there, very discreet articles or, or studies with regards to shipping, for example, or dock workers, for example. Um, however, I would say that this is clearly changing, that there are Currently, scholars who have in the last just few years have produced um, quite a bit of, you know, beautiful works dealing with this theme of what I would call the Maritime Caribbean. These would include Jesse Cromwell, Cristina Soriano, Edgardo Perez Morales, and Ernesto Bassi. 
I would also note that these scholars are all looking at the Caribbean from places not traditionally considered Caribbean locales, such as the coastal strips of Venezuela and Colombia. Um, so to my point, I think that my attempt to construct the maritime Caribbean as important allows for a wider aperture for understanding the Caribbean. It's not saying that enslavement of Africans to be used on plantations to produce sugar was not a, a central component of, of the Caribbean past, but it also just limits um, the experiences and, and it kind of um, silences places that didn't um, fall into that particular pattern. And with that particular kind of argument in mind, I, I was really trying to figure out how to push back on that idea that somehow small islands um, like the Cayman Islands or San Andres were just historically insignificant. And I think that they really have important things to tell us about social interactions across geographical spaces. I argue about the ways in which they could help us to think about boundary making and even, you know, the history of conservation um, practices. So, you know, I would kind of end with a quick point of saying that I'm, I'm arguing that we're going to have a fuller understanding of the entire region and not just portions of it if we're able to um, expand into the sea rather than just being kind of land bounded in our studies. Yeah, wonderful. And just for uh, mentioning it to our listeners, you interview many of those authors you mentioned, uh, Cristina Soriano, Edgardo Perez Morales, wonderful interviews that I recommend our listeners. So let's move to a very important argument of your book, if not the main argument, which is that turtle men helped to redraw the maritime boundaries of the modern Caribbean. And here, though you're alluding to the modern period, I mean, your book is about the 19th and 20th century, you stand further back in time when you explain this history. So regardless of that longer scope, tell us more about this specific modern history, uh, especially in the context of 19th and early 20th century Latin America, where uh, between 1890 and 1960, the governments of Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Colombia, and here I'm quoting you again, created an increasingly enforced legislation to delimit maritime boundaries and regulate access to foreign turtlemen. So how did turtlemen manage to shape maritime boundaries, even in the face of these increasing restrictions? Yeah, this is, um, you're absolutely correct. This was one of my central arguments and what led me to the project initially. Um, in, in the late 19th to early 20th century, um, this is a period when Latin American governments were beginning to enjoy revenue, for example, from you know, oftentimes their agro-export economies, um, this was a period of um, state formation or strengthening of political institutions, which made national elites become more aware of vulnerabilities, including populations and territories beyond their political control. And in these years, we see the governments of Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Colombia all turn their attention toward what we might think of as liminal or frontier populations and, and attempt to integrate them to, to various degrees. And one example, um, you know, I could point to, um, to share with our listeners is on um, the case of Nicaragua. So in Nicaragua, we have this eastern part of the country that faces the Caribbean Sea. It's occupied by um, the Misquito, who have been a self-autonomous indigenous polity and state for you know, much of the Spanish colonial period. It, it sort of had a, an intervention um, where the British kind of mediated sort of indirect control and claimed them as a protectorate. But by and large, there's been all these wonderful works that have shown how um, self-governing they were. And by the late 19th century, officials in Managua in the capital who are in a position now to kind of modernize their governments, be more efficient, try to um, seize up control, their populations, bring in more revenue. Um, they're looking at the situation and they want to have fuller control over this kind of self-governing through mediated intervention by the British. And so they execute this, this policy in which they call it the reincorporation of the region known as Musquitia. 
And their goal is to remove British influence, integrate the population and the territory. And when they think of territory, these elites are not just thinking about terrestrial territory, but they're also thinking about these maritime territories, keeping in mind their their knowledge that the Miskito often did these turtle fishing hunts several miles from the coast out into the Caribbean um, Sea. And, and there's these claims that the Nicaraguan government wants to make um, in terms of controlling not just the waters, but they want to control all the little little spots of land in the water, the, the banks, the bars, and the keys. And these are the same places in which um, Caymanian turtle hunters have been visiting for, for literally decades. They claim, you know, over 100 years. And what starts to happen is um, they're butting heads. The Nicaraguan authorities are going to demand that the Caymanians um, recognize their claim to that space, and therefore they're going to demand that the Caymanians pay um, a permit to fish. And the Caymanians are going to push back and try to um, offer counterclaims to the space being, you know, legitimately theirs, or or, or at least being a common space, um, which is what the British government will do. And this pattern in Nicaragua is actually seen in many places that the Caymanians traveled to in order to access these turtles, whether that was earlier on with Cuba or in Costa Rica or in Colombia. So we, we keep seeing this challenge to the idea of them accessing what in their minds had been traditional turtle fishing grounds. Um, They're very effective in the sense that they're able to get the British government to work on their behalf. We're talking about several hundred um, individuals. And and the reason why they're able to persuade the British government to get involved is the British government is sort of um, seeing their presence waning in this part of the Western Caribbean and Central America. And they want to um, maintain this sort of common law, if you will, that states have the ability to control the waters around them as long as it's three miles from the from the land. And anything beyond three miles is open. It's free. It's common. And we have various Latin American countries at the same same time making the exact opposite um, sort of claim. And and they're doing so recognizing that if they don't, um, they really could be vulnerable to foreign governments seizing control of territory or marine resources to benefit other countries. Yeah, and we're going to speak more about this very interesting conflicts between these very different ways of seeing, of conceptualizing the sea, uh, But before we get into the chapters, I would like us, because we're historians, to discuss sources and and archives and the scope of your project. Um, So you tell us that tremendous insights into the lives of these maritime harvesters come from the oral history program at the Cayman Islands National Archive. And I found that one of the most beautiful parts of your project, where where you mention or you quote Turtleman's uh, life stories, impressions, opinions, etc. So tell us more about this fascinating program of oral history and why it exists. I was so intrigued by that. And also about the other archives you consulted. So you've told us already that you were in Colombia, you were in San Andres, in Bogota, but you also consulted archives of other nations. Uh, I believe Costa Rica, you also have documents of Nicaragua, And on top of that, which is already a lot, you also relied on the personal archive of the leading sea turtle conservationist, Archie Carr, that is housed by the University of Florida. So tell us more about the sources and archives that you visited. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
Yeah, you did a great rundown um, there. So let me start with your question about the oral history program at the Cayman Islands National Archives. It's a superb archive with an amazing professional um, staff. Um, early on when it was formed, the first archivist there uh, made the decision to utilize financial resources um, obtained through the government to basically collect basic photocopies of any source related to the Cayman Islands that were held in, in foreign countries. So they have some sources about the Cayman Islands from Spain, neighboring Jamaica, and quite a bit coming from the United Kingdom, the Q. So they have the Public Records Office, Colonial and, and Foreign Office um, sources. And these are full, like, wonderfully typed, basically, facsimiles of these, these sources. At the same time as they were building their archive, originally from um, source material that had been available locally through their local government, and in addition to governments that were housing material about the Cayman Islands outside of the of the islands, um, they also implemented and they still have as an ongoing program their oral history program. And I happened to identify fifty seven transcribed oral histories. These are lengthy life histories of individuals who were involved in turtle fishing. And because there was tremendous interest on the part of the Cayman Islands National Archive and the interviewees, they asked, you know, very detailed questions about what life was like, you know, what was the working conditions, you know, what type of equipment did they use, how much pay did they receive? And it became clearly the centerpiece to much of what I was able to draw on to tell from their perspective. Now, I was fortunate that with the British government documents that I found at the Cayman Islands National Archive, that those often included correspondence, but also testimonies and petitions um, whenever the, these disputes emerged, um, oftentimes with the government of Nicaragua, but but not exclusively. And so I also have from the 1800s forward, um, you know, these accounts of, of turtle men making their claims. Um, so you can trace individuals. Um, I was so excited when I came across a particular incident that maybe we'll talk about later of a turtling dispute um, between the Caymanians and a foreign government. And I had recognized essentially the inc incident because I had read about it in Bogota um, in the um, Ministry of Government Records that I had used um, years before. And I didn't at the time transcribe them or, or take camera-ready photographs of it at the time, but I but I eventually I, I go back and, and, and I, I return to Bogota to, to do that. But I, I could cross-reference, you know, some of the individuals and in the disputes. So Cayman Islands National Archive was an amazing archive. But I also I also used newspapers. Um, so I tracked um, a lot of information from the Gleaner and the Daily Gleaner from Jamaica. Um, they would report regularly, um, regularly enough um, about incidents that were happening with relation to the Cayman Islands since the Cayman Islands were a dependency to Jamaica. Um, I did um, track this a little bit in U.S. Um, newspapers, and I was able to find some material in English language um, newspapers coming out of the Caribbean coast for Costa Rica and on the island of San Andres, um, which was really helpful. Um, because of some of the turtling disputes, um, I decided to track cases in Costa Rica. So I went to the Archivo Nacional there in San Jose and was able to look at some diplomatic um, correspondence talking about disputes with regards to turtle fishing, sometimes with the Caymanians, but not exclusively. Um, there were disputes also with the islanders of San Andres and Providencia in Colombia. And so it, it just was my ability to kind of keep track of the people, um, their names, the incidences in the years, and just really kind of familiarize myself with these small places that allowed me to, to move across multiple countries and their archives. Yeah, and I believe this is why this book, which is very short, but it's so rich in terms of archival research, in terms of the scope. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. So... Now that I believe we've covered the basic ground, let's talk about chapters. So your book is divided into five chapters, and they're organized thematically, although they overlap chronologically. And so even though your book is mostly about the 19th and 20th centuries, you cover a longer history of turtle hunting in your first chapter. 
which is titled Sages of the Sea, Turtles in the Greater Caribbean. So you have kind of talked about this a little bit. And in this chapter, you narrate the long history of turtlemen in the Caribbean, and you explain the basic biology and behavior of the sea turtle. So I know this is a lot of ground to cover in one single question, but I wonder if you can explain to our listeners the difference between the green and the hawksbill turtles, which are central to your story, because these were the two species that turtle men hunted. And maybe here in broad strokes, you can tell our listeners how turtles became a distinctive feature of these coastal and island communities. Okay, so I guess it's important to note that sea turtles have always been a part of the ecological world of the Caribbean. Um, there were a few different types of sea turtles that were and are found in the Caribbean today. But the two types um, that became commercially viable in the Western Caribbean and that were pursued by the Caymanians and the other populations that I describe in my book were the green turtle, which were pretty much hunted for its meat or its flesh. People described it as kind of a lean meat um, similar to veal. Green turtles were known as being huge, um, enormous in size. Uh, a, a smaller size would be 200 pounds, but they could you know, get as large as 600 pounds. And during their adulthood, they were strict vegetarians, um, which probably accounts for the you know, desirability of um, green turtles for its meat. And they become popular in dishes like turtle soup or turtle steak. There's all these kind of varieties, but turtle soup is kind of the quintessential dish starting in the 18th and moving into the 20th century. The second sea turtle type that became commercially viable and perhaps even more marketable in terms of profits than the green turtle was the hawksbill turtles. Um, it has kind of like a hawk beak for its snout. And it was mostly desired for its um, scales, these multicolored scutes that kind of have this beautiful swirly brown and yellow and black colors um, that we know of as being called tortoise shell, which is kind of a misnomer because it's not a tortoise, which is a, a land reptile, a land turtle, if you will. And they were used obviously as kind of decorative items, um, you know, for mirrors or, or eyeglasses, for example. Um, With the exception of the islanders on Cayman Brac and on the Colombian island of Providencia, few other Caribbean populations wanted to eat the hawksbill. So it wasn't like viable as like a food source. And it likely has to do with what people reported as kind of the strong flavor of hawksbill meat. Um, the eggs were eaten. Um, they would eat the eggs, but they wouldn't eat the actual turtle meat very often. And it And scientists have explained that it's probably because of the kind of food um, that hawksbills ate. Um, they weren't vegetarians. They kind of ate on sponges um, and other little tiny sea life. And therefore, there was a high level of toxicity. So at some point, it was clear that this was not like a viable food source. And, and scientists have been wondering recently, you know, if there were changes, if there's been changes that have made it more palatable to, to populations. So that's kind of a, a quick description of the two types. And I, I guess I would, you know, mention to, to our listeners that it's hard to imagine, but there were like millions of turtles swimming around the Caribbean Sea. Um, you know, there's these descriptions of the early chroniclers who said they were thick, literally thick with turtles. You could see their heads just bobbing in the water. Um, you're seeing hundreds of them on, on the beaches, which made them really accessible to pre-Columbian and early modern turtle hunters um, during the age of European um, exploration and colonization of the Caribbean. Um, the Caymanians became front and center for a few reasons. The Cayman Islands actually were Um, the site of kind of a, a nesting ground for both of these types of sea turtles. So um, those individuals who had lived there, you know, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, they were used to seeing green turtles and hawksbill turtles very easily on the beach or, you know, not far from the coastline. And it had been one of several um, maritime activities, um, the selling of these sea turtles to passing ships as additional food, but also it was just kind of part of their ecological world, if, if, if I will. I should point out also that there's some odd 
distinction. Um, on Grand Cayman, the larger island of the Cayman Islands, um, those particular islanders pursued only the green turtle. And then the Cayman Brac islanders only pursued the hawksbill. And it's not really known or explained why that's the case, but there is a sort of a distinction that they kind of have a parallel turtle fishing culture that allowed them to equally participate in, in this industry, but pursuing of, of different animals. Yeah, and as I was reading your book, I kept Googling the images of the turtles because, I mean, first, you do have a lot of images that I recommend to our listeners when they go and buy the book. But then I also wanted to see more images because you do transport us to this world. And I, I kept imagining of this thousands of thousands of sea turtles. Uh, but something happened in the late 19th century, which is kind of at the core of your following two chapters, which was the depletion of, of nearby turtle stocks in the Cayman Islands. So let's talk about these two chapters together. Tell us what the Caymanian turtlemen do once these turtle stocks were depleted. What, what were the changes that occurred in the late 19th, early 20th century? And maybe to tie this up with the chapter three, which I saw more as a more personal and let's call quote-unquote private part of the story. You explore the interconnectedness between the Cayman Islands and various circum-Caribbean communities. So once this Caymanian man had to go further out in the sea to hunt for these turtles, they established bonds, relationships, they migrated to other communities. So tell us about those two things. First, about what was it like to hunt turtles, which is what you do in chapter two. You describe the grueling work and the low pay, the inconsistent pay. And then in chapter three, you deal more with the personal side of the story, the kinship side of the story, the commerce, the mobility. So tell us about, about those two things. Sure. So in chapter two, I explained very early on that there is quickly a depletion of the, the sea turtles by 1800. And, and as a result, um, as you pointed out with your question, Lisette, the Canadians had to respond. And, you know, they responded in the sense that they, they couldn't easily procure these turtles from the beaches or short boat trips any longer. They had to travel long distances. And this um, led to some structural changes in how they could keep the industry alive. It required new equipment, such as um, larger sloops and, and schooners, in order to carry these small dugout boats um, made to fit sea turtles, um, which they will call cat boats. So they, you know, they might take 30 or so men with them on a, on a crew. They have multiple cat boats, and then you would take the cat boat out into the deep ocean where you would set a net and therefore, in addition to having bigger sloops and schooners and having to pay for someone, um, a shipwright to build you a cat boat, you now needed to have these really long, extensive nets that you would use to capture sea turtles. Um, of course, these voyages that would take you anywhere from the um, southern waters of Cuba, mostly to um, the waters near to Nicaragua, kind of southern Honduras. Um, Costa Rica and around the archipelago San Andres and Providencia, that meant that you could be gone for you know months essentially, and therefore you had to have food provisions, which also required capital. So you need a lot of capital in order to pursue turtle fishing as an industry. Most Caymanians actually had little capital, and this led to a handful of shopkeepers and merchants who were involved in trade with neighboring islands such as Jamaica to essentially outfit the voyage. And in doing so, the profits poured mostly in the hands of the shopkeepers who would organize the voyages. They would kind of um, put the money up front to to get them going, and therefore they recruited um, the crew, these turtlers, if you will. Um, on a share system in which the men who actually hunted the turtle, they earned their portion of the profits from the sale um, of the turtles once they had returned. And, you know, when I was interpreting these oral histories, it became clear to me that 
the turtle men accepted low wages and sometimes inconsistent pay for this dangerous work because of the autonomy um, and the ways in which the interactions among the crew, while hierarchical, right, there's a captain and there's a mate and they get more of a share than those who would be um, on the crew as as a turtler who's going to you know go cast the net or someone who's going to stay on a key and for a week or two or three and just kind of wait for the um, turtles to arrive as rangers, um, there was a level of kind of democracy in the sense that everyone had to really work hard and they had this sort of collaborative nature that minimized during their time at sea the hierarchical structure of what was happening when they were out on their voyage. Um, it, it's it's important to keep in mind that life was already hard <laughs> on the Cayman Islands. You know, Caymanians pretty much throughout the 19th into the first part of the 20th century, they were still bartering for for goods, you know, it wasn't like a strong currency there. Um, they were sheltering themselves from the natural disasters, such as the hurricanes that impacted them both on on land and at sea. Um, and therefore, the the conditions of the of the of the the turtle schooner or or being on the cat boat, while not an equitable situation, gave them a tremendous autonomy. And 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 you can hear it in their voices, the pride um, that they felt in the work that they did. And so I, I tried to tease out um, what allowed multiple generations of, of men, you know, people would reference their grandfather and their father, they would be taken out to do this work as young as 12 years old, um, to see their father um, participate in this kind of labor, you know, what kept them going. And in doing this work, and in, and in going further away from the Cayman Islands, um, it became quite clear that this opened up a form of migration or mobility within a regional sense, kind of this regional migratory sphere in which these people were moving from Cayman Islands to to, to oftentimes small islands, um, whether it was um, the Bay Islands um, or Roatan or San Andres or Corn Island. And um, some of them, you know, might take opportunities to work for the canal in Panama, or they might obtain work on a gold mine in Nicaragua, but they were being exposed to these new locales because of the nature of the turtle fishing, which brought them there. And I wanted to kind of showcase these exchanges, um, which allowed for the transfer of knowledge about how to acquire turtle fish. So they learned from the mosquito, for example, and the mosquito started to learn from them. Um, the mosquito of Nicaragua usually used harpoons, for example, to capture the turtles. But by the 20th century, you start seeing them using nets. They learned that from the Caymanians, right, who were interacting with them at sea and um, on land. And I wanted to kind of showcase how um, the experience of English-speaking Caribbean populations, particularly in Central America, in the historiography is pretty much organized on this understanding that it was driven by corporate or state-sponsored projects, right? Come work on the banana plantations of the United Fruit Company. Come work on the canal project by the Isthmian Canal Commission. And it gives you the impression that everyone was coming from Jamaica and Barbados and they end up along these Caribbean lowland communities. But in fact, um, a lot of these communities had been started by these small islanders, many of whom had learned about the locations because of the turtle fishing. And they talk about that in their own community narratives about their own experiences with migration. And so the the oral histories that I found at, at the Cayman Island National Archive really spoke to that. Yeah, wonderful. And that's, I mean, those two sides of the story are so interesting. And they come through both of those chapters beautifully. So listeners, you can go check that out. But now we can move to another theme of your book, which you've already talked a little bit about it, which is uh, turtle men's resistance to state efforts to regulate turtle fishing. And this is chapter four. And this was my personal favorite, I must say, and it's titled Limits at Sea, State Claims, Territorial Consolidation and Boundary Disputes. And this chapter examines disputes over turtle fishery across several circum-Caribbean locales the southern case of Cuba, the Mosquito case of Nicaragua, and the Colombian archipelago of San Andres, Providencia, and Santa Catalina. So here we see the conflict between the British understanding of the Caribbean as a common space, something you already mentioned, uh, as somewhat a transnational maritime zone, and Latin American countries 
quote-unquote new definition of the sea as something that pertains to individual nations. So here I, I will be a little bit selfish and ask you about the disputes that occur between Caymanian turtlemen and Colombia. And because I know Colombia is dear to your heart, I know you'll happily talk about that. Yes, I mean, and I'm happy to hear that you enjoyed this chapter because the book started with this chapter. This was the, the issue I was you know, wrestling with from the beginning. So it's important to point out that because of the racial and ethnic and linguistic and religious differences between the populations on San Andres and Providencia and the mainland Colombia and its population being Spanish speakers, um, what we might call Hispanic Catholic nation to this Afro-Caribbean English Protestant population, there's been concern for quite some time about how to reconcile or to properly govern or to integrate them into Colombia. And what becomes particularly interesting about this concern is that um, it's not just through the normal kind of state formation of political projects and getting the right official there or, you know, sending teachers to learn the language, it becomes also very much a kind of a goal of having kind of full control over the islands, particularly because there had been opportunities of of resistance um, um, in which um, there was a vulnerability that either Nicaragua um, might um, lay claims to the archipelago keeping in mind that it's physically closer and there's some similarities between the archipelago and, and, and their neighboring insular territories, as well as the role of the United States being nearby with the um, intervention with the Panama Canal. And so what we find is that the Colombian authorities, particularly after 1910, are particularly sensitive and, and becoming increasingly responsive to concerns that threaten their claims of sovereignty over the archipelago. And they hear of these things um, sometimes through the islanders themselves who become upset either that the Colombian government has not taken a more proactive role in trying to regulate um, access to these turtle fishing grounds, and they're complaining about the presence of foreigners, basically Caymanians, who are um, fishing in the in the near, nearby waters and are taking turtle from the waters. And so that's happening. And then sometimes they're upset with the Colombian government for not protecting their rights when they're fishing in places near to Costa Rica, for example. So you have this kind of dual process by which the islanders are kind of forcing the Colombian government to to take action. And this leads to increasingly um, more legislation in which the Colombian government requires that foreign hunters um, obtain, well, all people ob obtain a permit to fish in the waters, and particularly um, that foreigners have to pay for the right to do so. And the Caymanians increasingly just, they just ignore it. And it's not because they don't know. Um, the Colombian government was very effective in making sure to send correspondence and send news to British authorities in Jamaica and on the island. And this kind of bubbles up into this um, really important case that occurs in 1925, in which 30 turtle hunters, mostly from the Cayman um, Islands, but, but some who came from um, the Honduran island of Roatan, were detained on the island of San Andres for 10 months um, for illegal fishing in Colombian waters. That previous year, in 1924, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs had alerted the British government that they wanted them to inform their, their Caymanian um, subjects to, to acquire the necessary paperwork to come into Colombian waters. Um, it happened to be some Providencia Islanders who informed the Colombian Coast Guard that they had seen four fishing vessels, you know, out there hunting turtle. <laughs> and they, you know, informed the Coast Guard, who then informed the, the highest official on the island, the intendant, who was angry and, and he just thought it was blatant disrespect, essentially, and these back and forth cablegrams that were going between him and the minister of, of government in Bogota. And he managed to secure a passing kind of ship that could carry his uh, policemen, 50 policemen, were able to take two of the four turtle schooners and bring them back to the the island. And, and from there, there's this back and forth um, legal process by which these turtle hunters are, are detained. They're like literally in jail. Uh, eventually, some of them are able to leave jail and, and kind of be released under the authority of, of a local islander where they can work. 
but the British government was involved in very intense diplomatic in exchanges with the Colombian um, Ministry of Foreign Affairs to release them. Subsequently, they 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 ultimately were released. The Supreme um, kind of court um, based out of Cartagena. Uh, eventually dismisses the case in favor of the turtle hunters from the Cayman Islands and the Colombian government actually compensates them, which the British government took a good portion of the money um, saying that they had paid for all this legal service and and therefore they they didn't really see much of it. But this was a very um, intense heightened period that got international attention and that really started to show the the inability of um, the British government to be effective in um, making the claim that the Caymanians had the right to access what Colombia, Nicaragua, Costa Rica had been arguing were essentially national waters. And it, it, it starts to kind of um, minimize their ability to fully um, access um, turtle fishing grounds as they had done so 100 years earlier. So yeah, so that chapter four is wonderful. And I really recommend it to to our listeners, and it makes sense. This is where everything started, because you can see a lot of the tensions, disputes that you're talking about. And so we move to chapter five, which is fascinating in a different way. And this may draw the interest of listeners more rooted in the history of environmentalism or the history of conservation. So chapter five, which is titled Save the Turtles, the Rise of Sea Turtle Conservationism, 1940s, 1970s, focuses mostly on the figure of Archie Carr and his scientific research in the Caribbean. So it's interesting because Carr didn't initially intend to ban or uh, foster the prohibition of turtle fishery, but that's what ended up happening with his research. And that was he ended up completely including was the best path to follow in order to protect sea turtles. Can you tell us more about this chapter, what was happening in this period and that led to the prohibition of turtle fishery and what were turtle hunters doing in this period? Sure. So chapter five really um, sets the scene of the years after the second, well, during and after the Second World War, where there's tremendous changes on the islands of Cayman in general, but but to the turtle fishing industry more more specifically. So on the one hand, the war itself had really um, limited and disrupted the turtle fishing industry. Their largest consumers had originally been in the UK, but people didn't have money, and, and it was hard to kind of safely you know send ships across the Atlantic. So that particular luxury commodity of green turtle meat um, decline. And and tortoiseshell also was less in demand because plastics have been introduced. And so there's kind of a a more affordable alternative to tortoiseshell. But rather than kind of having the Second World War in and of itself sort of put the industry in complete decline, it actually just shifted um, the direction of its market, making it more towards the United States, um, in Key West in particular, that had a, a turtle cannery. And because of, you know, new technologies, we had more consumer demand in the post Second World War period, and people wanted to eat their turtle soup tube, and you can get it canned. So you find that the Caymanians are are moving to meet this American market, but they're also faced with um, a depletion of the of the turtle stock. And you start to see fewer of the men being involved in turtle fishing. Um, there are still some old timers and, and even, you know, some old timers who are able to mentor and bring in new new individuals to continue turtle fishing. But but the industry has been hit. And as this is happening, we also are seeing the rise of em- environmentalism, um, particularly kind of maritime based environmentalism. This is the time period of Rachel Carson, who wrote The Sea Around Us, which people forget because we you know we remember you know some of her later work. But her first work really dealt with the sea and you know, Jacques Cousteau and oceanography. And this is where we have a much greater attention to kind of the, the human impact foot, footprint, essentially, on, on the earth and, and the sea um, more specifically. Um, Archie Carr is not as well known as Rachel Carson, but he's 
He's fundamental in understanding anything we might think of as sea turtle conservationism. Archie Carr um, was a Floridian herpetologist. Essentially, he studied reptiles. <laughs> and prior to the 1950s, um, he essentially spent um, much of his early career in Latin America. He did a brief stint in Mexico. He taught at the agricultural school created by the United Fruit Company in Honduras. And he spoke Spanish and he eventually gets interested in, in sea turtles in part because he has a Costa Rican student who he met in Honduras who kind of lures him with stories about a location on the Caribbean side of Costa Rica called um, Tortuguero or the English speakers would call Turtle Bogue. And he makes a visit there and he just becomes quite fascinated with um, a couple of things. Um, one, hearing about the stories of the people who consumed and, and made their livelihoods off of um, fishing turtle. But then he becomes increasingly concerned by the declines of that population. He is the kind of the key individual to instigate essentially um, a field station in which he is going to conduct some studies about um, the decline in the population, trying to figure out more about their migratory behavior. And he does so um, by drawing on the wealth of knowledge by the people who would maybe know turtles best, the green and the hawksbill turtles best. And that are those Caymanian turtle men, particularly those captains who organize those schooner voyages. So he um, draws in these captains and, and he you know listens to their stories and he takes their observations about sea turtle behavior and he utilizes it for his own studies, which to this very day, you know, we have the Archie Carr um, field station at Tortuguero in, in, in northern Costa Rica. And so in this chapter, what I wanted to do was try to explain kind of the changes that are going to set the Cayman Islands into what we know of it as a kind of a tourism island um, um, because of the changes that were happening much more largely with the consumer market, but also the decline of turtles, but also show how they also played a role in helping to set the stage for the conservationism that's going to be promoted by Archie Carr, who did tremendous work in getting foreign governments in the international kind of world of scientists to eventually place these two sea turtle types um, on the endangered species list. And I'm amazed how you managed to cover all of these topics in this very short book because I believe it's not more than 200 pages and you do so well and it's a wonderful read listeners so I really recommend it. So we arrive to to your conclusion and you tie this up to the present which is perfect because I love to finish up with questions about the present and I guess I would like to ask you what you know why is this history important for the present um you know, some of the long lasting impacts of, of turtle fishery. And maybe just to bring it up to what's going on, I mean, San Andres, Providencia, Santa Catalina just have been going through a very rough couple of months because of the hurricanes. And you sometimes mention hurricanes in your book and how these communities have managed to survive this, these events in history. So I found that comforting. In, with what's going on, but you know, we know that we're experiencing climate change. So I know I said a lot in that question, but I just want to want you to talk about the present. Sure. So um, let me quickly just kind of talk about what I would like people to get from this history. I, I think a few things. Um, first, my goal is to widen our view about the day to day life of Caribbean peoples, particularly beyond the um, kind of terrestrial studies about you know, plantation society, or, or whether that's um, during or, or after slavery. I also wanted to show how turtle fishing disputes really wrestled the feather, you know, you know, kind of frustrated modernizing states um, who wanted to assert, you know, greater control over people and territories and resources. And because they're a mobile ecological resource, um, that's not really easy to do. So it was a very messy um, process. And then I think third, I hope that the book was going to reveal the consequences of overexploitation of resources, in this case, marine resources that have a tremendous effect on us as humans, but also on non-human actors. But I also think there was a path towards changing, you know, human imprints. Um, the turtle fishermen who are a part of the overexploitation of turtle fishing 
also played a role in helping to create conservation efforts, um, maybe unintentionally, but 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 they did contribute to that. So there's something to be said there. Um, our listeners probably want to know what what's going on with the sea turtles today. So the green and hawksbill turtles are still considered endangered and critically endangered species. While there is a glimmer of kind of hope that CARS conservation efforts, which are continued in Costa Rica, have resulted in a small but steady growth in green turtle populations, for example, this sadly not the trend for the entire region. And um, you're absolutely correct that climate change and, you know, still overfishing exploitation as well um, do continue to impact these communities like San Andres in, in Providencia. Providencia, for our listeners who are not knowing, early November was hit by um, Hurricane Iota. And, you know, roughly 90 percent of the, the island's population lost all of their their, their homes and, and, and belongings that was just completely demolished. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, we, we did you know, lose two two lives, and it's it's going to be an incredible hard you know hill to climb to to rebuild. Um, but one thing that I've learned, not just from my own research, but from others who have focused on hurricanes, I'm thinking like Stuart Schwartz, for example, is that Caribbean people are extremely resilient. Um, the resiliency has been not just because of their own efforts, but often, um, as I pointed out in my work, um, they received help and support from from neighboring islands. And so it's it's really a human effort. But these are real issues and have real consequences. Um, and we can perhaps learn a little bit from from the past on it. Definitely. And yeah, so I think your book is very timely and important for thinking about this present issues. So just to wrap up, last question, promise. What are you working on right now? Yes. So I'm actually um, gearing up to resume work that I began with my dissertation. So um, my current book was not my doctoral research project. So I'm going back to it. And I want to examine a century of politics of inclusion and exclusion on the Colombian islands of San Andres and Providencia. I think this book has really helped me better understand how to situate the islands within processes of state formation, but also larger discourses surrounding decolonization in the greater Caribbean in the, in the 1950s and, and 60s. So I'm super excited um, to get back to that project. And a future project I'm considering is something surrounding the Panama Canal Zone. Wonderful. I can't wait to read both of those things. So thank you so much. Sharika, for your time and for this wonderful conversation. Thank you, Lisette, for having me. This has been an amazing opportunity.